If you'd open your Bibles, please, to Revelation 17 tonight. We'll be looking at verses 14 to 18, which say this, These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. And He said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues, And the ten horns which you saw, and the beast, these will hate the harlot, and will make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh, and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose, and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Let's pray. Father, Thank you so much for your precious word and your people who are out tonight. We pray that you would allow this text in Revelation to speak to us, Lord, in a very personal way, very practical way. We'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Not long ago, I had a chance to talk to someone about their relationship with the Lord, and the response was, I've tried religion, it doesn't work. And I said, that's your problem. That's your problem. Religion never works. Fact of the matter is, I think the most dangerous poison on the face of this earth is religion. One of the most deadly and dangerous things on this earth are these systems of religion. They just take people off in directions that are away from truth. They promote things that are not sound uh, according to the scriptures, and they just lead people astray. Now, we're in a section of Revelation that deals with the subject of the destruction of Babylon, And this is a very significant moment in the prophetic plan of God, especially as it relates to Israel and her kingdom. The Apostle John is being shown a harlot who will be completely destroyed just before the Lord Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom on this earth. And most of the mentions of the name Babylon occur in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, other than here and in Revelation, There are only six mentions of Babylon. In Matthew 1.1, Babylon is mentioned in the lineage list of Jesus Christ, the Jewish pedigree given before the captivity in Babylon. In Matthew 1.12, the lineage of Jesus Christ's Jewish pedigree is given after the captivity of Babylon. It is stated in that verse. Also, in Matthew 1.17, the lineage of Christ's Jewish generations is given from David to Babylon. And then in Matthew 1.17, the lineage list of Jesus Christ and the Jewish generations are given from Babylon to Christ. In Acts 7.43, Stephen testifies that Israel's idolatry brought about Babylonian judgment. And then we get one other reference in 1 Peter where Peter does seem to say that there was a true church that was in existence in Babylon. So when you look at those New Testament references, other than here in the book of Revelation, what we would conclude is the judgments that God will pour out on Babylon specifically do have to do with their connection to Israel and not so much the church. In fact, the church is gone. The church has been raptured before this actually happens. Now, this is a critical prophetic moment. Just before the Lord Jesus Christ returns, God wants us to realize, I'm going to settle that score. I'm going to settle Israel's score. I'm going to pour out my wrath on Babylon. This issue is so important in the eschatological program of God that there are four chapters of the Bible, two in the Old Testament, two in the New Testament, that give us a graphic description of this. 
You have Jeremiah 50, Jeremiah 51, you have Revelation 17, and Revelation chapter 18. And when we track the subject of Babylon in the Bible, God holds Babylon responsible and accountable for at least three major evil things which did affect Israel. The first evil thing that he holds Babylon accountable for is she is responsible for initiating and promoting the worship of false gods, which is idolatry. Now, don't kid yourself. A lot of religious stuff is very seductive. People are drawn to religious stuff. They like rituals. They're drawn to emotionalism and sensationalism. I mean, they like that. Religion has a way of luring people in. It pulls them away from God. It's all about works and feelings and rituals, and it's all about anything except grace and anything except God's word. And God holds Babylon accountable for causing people to worship something other than him. It started there. Babylon introduced horrible idolatry into religion. Babylon introduced horrible idolatry into the world, and she pulled Israel away from a true Focus on the God of the Bible. It stands to reason before Jesus Christ returns to establish his kingdom once again with Israel. He's going to go back there and settle that score. And some of the idols that she introduced went by various names that are mentioned in scripture. There was an idol she had, Bel, Baal. There was another idol that she invented that was called Marduk, a deity of justice and compassion and healing and magic. There was another one mentioned in scriptures, another Babylonian idol called Nebo, the deity of writing and the deity of vegetation. And there was another one called Sukoth Benoth, which was the deity of astrology. And then you have Tammuz, who was the fertility deity. I mean, Babylon just had all kinds of idolatrous stuff that she implemented into what she called worship, and people just followed that rather than the word of God. Man, I'm telling you, Religion grips people. This Babylonian harlot's still at work. People will follow crazy religious things rather than the word of God. And it all started in Babylon. So God holds her accountable for that evil. Evil number two, she's responsible for promoting intoxicating immorality. We've already seen that in this chapter in verse two, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Apparently, God holds Babylon responsible for introducing immoral abominations into God's world and God's people. And I'm going to tell you something right now. You get a church or any type of religious system that moves away from the word of God, and you get behind the scenes of what's going on in that place and in people's life, and you will discover there are a lot of false, evil, immoral things that are not being dealt with. They're being covered up. Now, when God made man and woman, he made them so that they could enjoy physical things together. And a husband and wife can be intoxicated with each other's love. It's perfectly honorable in the sight of the Lord. But then there was that Tower of Babel in which men were going to build a tower to heaven. I mean, they literally thought they were going to work their way to heaven. They wanted to be as God. They were going to make it on their own. So they started building that tower. And God said, these people, we've got to go down there and confuse their languages and when God went down and confused their languages, those people spread out to various places. That also happens in Genesis chapter 11. So what we actually have geographically happening here is at the Tower of Babel, you have these people spreading out, and they're spreading all over to various parts of the world, but they didn't worship God. They did not worship God, not the God who had created the heavens and the earth. And by the time you get to Genesis 18... 
Things are so immoral that you could not find 10 moral people in Sodom and the city was dominated by homosexuality. And by the time you get to Moses, when he writes the law, there is a series of sexual perversions that are abominations to God. You can read them in Leviticus 18. Where did all of that start? Where did this false religion start? Where did this immorality that's connected to all of this begin? Right here in Babylon. And God holds that part of the world accountable and responsible. Moses has to warn God's people, don't get involved in things like homosexuality. Don't get involved in bestiality. Don't get involved in sacrificing babies to false deities. Where did this all begin, this depravity in Babylon? So God said there's evil number two. Evil number three, she's responsible because she did evil things against Israel. She's responsible for doing evil things against Israel. And God makes it very clear. I've kept the records of everything that these people have done concerning national Israel. Now, I do want to take you back to just a couple of passages tonight in Jeremiah. So I would like you to go back to Jeremiah 50, if you would, for a moment. Jeremiah chapter 50. And I want to just show you a couple of passages from the parallel texts that deal with Babylon in Jeremiah 50 and 51. In Jeremiah chapter 50, and I want to point out to you verse 17 of Jeremiah chapter 50, starting at verse 17, Israel is a scattered flock. The lions have driven them away. The first one who devoured him was the king of Assyria, and this last one who's broken his bones is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I'm going to punish the king of Babylon and his land, just as I punished the king of Assyria. And I will bring Israel back to his pasture, and he will graze on Carmel and Bashan, and his desire will be satisfied in the hill country of Ephraim and Gilead. In those days, and at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for iniquity of Israel, but there will be none. And for the sins of Judah, but they will not be found, for I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. Now that is a clear prediction of what's going to take place in Revelation. I mean, God says, I'm going to punish Babylon for the evil they did against national Israel. And then when I get done doing that, I'm going to take that nation. I'm going to bring her right back to that land. I'm going to bless her in that land. There'll be a remnant that will survive this, and I'm going to bless them in the land. Now, flip over to... Uh, down to verse 29, as long as you're open to Jeremiah 50, drop down to verse 29. Summon many against Babylon, all those who bend the bow, encamp against her on every side. Let there be no escape. Repay her according to her work, according to all that she has done. So do to her, for she has become arrogant against the Lord and against the Holy One of Israel. Now go over to chapter 51 and verse 24. Chapter 51 and verse 24. We read in chapter 51, verse 24, But I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all their evil that they've done in Zion before your eyes, declares the Lord. Now drop down to verse 49 of Jeremiah 51. Indeed, Babylon is to fall for the slain of Israel, and also for Babylon the slain of all the earth have fallen. Now, what God says, basically, to Babylon is, I've kept the records of this. John is being shown this by this angel. He's being shown this. God has kept the records of everything that she has done negatively to Israel. And so God intends to literally make Babylon a horror statement of a demonstration of his wrath and indignation. 
Now, as we mentioned in our previous study, the proper noun Babylon refers to several things in the Bible. It refers to a specific land, a specific geographical location, sometimes called Babylon, sometimes called Chaldea. Today, it's called Iraq. It's a vast land that's comprised of a lot of different cities. It's referred to there in the scriptures. It also refers to a specific city that has literal streets and literal walls. It's located about 60 miles south of Baghdad, and that's where this Babylon was actually located. And there are about a quarter million people, give or take a few, that actually live in that very vicinity right now. Thirdly, it refers to an apostate religion, an apostate religion that is completely idolatrous. It's a man-made, seductive religion. A lot of traditions of men, a lot of rituals invented by men, but it's not given to the truth of the word of God. That Babylonian religion refers to that. Fourthly, it refers to a political power and political leader. Whenever Babylon is referred to as a political power and political leader, is it's anti-God. Anti-God in politics, anti-God in religion. And fifthly, it refers to the source of depraved godlessness. Immoral abominations have literally come out of this part of the world. Babylon is the mother who gave birth to the idolatry and immorality that pulled Israel away from God. She's responsible for man-made religion that has been imparted to the whole world. So when you hear of religious systems and people are inventing stuff by men that they're supposed to do, you can just know right now that connects us right back to Babylon. That's where this all began. There's nothing new here under the sun. It's just a repetition and a development of the Babylonian harlot. And what God predicts I'm going to do to this place is just before my son comes back to give Israel her land and kingdom, I'm going to completely annihilate, eliminate, obliterate, eradicate, and exterminate her. I'm going to wipe her off the face of the earth. And he has devoted four chapters in his inspired word to that very theme. So what we get to see here in Revelation, and what John gets to see here in Revelation, are the logistics of how that happens. What John has happening here, as we come to our text proper tonight, is there's this wrath angel, guide, He's like a guide who's showing John what's going to happen. He's basically taking John into the future, and he's saying this is what's going to happen to this Babylon that's been talked about in the book of Jeremiah. And what we see tonight is John is permitted to see the graphic details of the destruction of Babylon just before Jesus Christ returns to destroy all enemies and take over the world. Now what we've seen to this point in Revelation is a close connection in the Great Tribulation between Babylon and the Antichrist, and we've seen a close connection between Babylon and all world powers and political powers who are supporting the Antichrist. So to this point in the study of the book of Revelation, Babylon's in cahoots with the political leaders of the world. She's riding along, and she's being fully supported by them. That's all about the change. It's amazing what God's going to do here. It actually is amazing. It's an amazing statement for his sovereignty. Now, there are four very important prophetic facts from the text before us tonight. First of all, the Antichrist and the ten kings who support him are going to wage war against the Lamb. You talk about stupid. This is as stupid as it gets. It's as arrogant and as idiotic as it can get. Verse 14, these will wage war against the Lamb and the Lamb will overcome them. Now, at this point in the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist controls the world, and he has specifically entered into a key relationship with these ten major kings. 
He has these 10 major political allies who, quite frankly, are out of their minds. These 10 kings rule simultaneously, and they specifically rule in their hatred of the Lamb. There has never been, if you check European history, a time when they've had great unity among 10 world powers. It's never existed, which would be another indication this is yet futuristic, because it has not happened yet in Europe where they've had this great unity among themselves. They've always been in conflict and in war. I mean, that's what you have going on in Europe constantly. But now, at this point in time, there's a unity developing, and the unity is developing over the hatred of the Lamb. And I want us to keep in our minds that at this point in the tribulation, we are well into the tribulation, nearing the conclusion of it. So these people of the world understand that what has been happening in the world ever since Revelation chapter 6, when God has been pouring out his wrath on the world, they understand this is the wrath of the Lamb. So by this point in the great tribulation, geographical places have been totally destroyed by the wrath of God all over the world. So I'm not sure just exactly where the dimensions are concerning their kingdoms and these ten kings, but they are identified as kings. They're not identified as presidents. They're not identified as prime ministers, so we can assume politically this is not a democracy. It's become a world type of dictatorship. And at this point in the Great Tribulation, these ten specific kings are completely on board with a hatred of Jesus Christ. These ten kings completely support the agenda of the Antichrist, and the agenda of the Antichrist at this point is to wage war against the Lamb. And that verb, wage war, is one that means go to battle and fight the Lamb. That's what it means, talking about warfare. Go fight in a war against the Lamb. And the future tense of the verb is important because at this point, Jesus Christ, who's the Lamb, is not quite yet back on earth. So the Antichrist and these political leaders are actually aware of the fact he's coming back. What they're trying to do is muster up a battle plan so they can actually get into some future war and fight against the Lamb. Now you would naturally think that these political leaders would think, well, you know, perhaps we better not try to go to war against him. He's been destroying the world. And we haven't been able to stop him. And also, we know that Satan and his angels couldn't beat Michael and his angels. They were cast out of heaven, confined to this earth. So what chance do you think we're going to have of beating him? But the Antichrist, who has been raised from the dead, has somehow convinced these people otherwise to give their allegiance to him and actually try to make war against the Lamb. And political leaders are not after the truth of God. They think in ways that are, frankly, out of their minds. People and political leaders not right with the Lord, not interested in truth, think crazy ways. And we see that in our world. And the whole world will be united in its opposition to Jesus Christ. Don't miss this point. You see, we have people who speak all kinds of different languages, we have people who live in all different parts of the world. There are people who have all different political ideologies and all kinds of different religions, but they are united in one thing. The vast majority of people on this earth are united in their hatred of Jesus Christ. Muslims hate him. Mormons hate him. Catholics hate him. They love their religion more than him. They hate grace. That's what they hate. They hate grace. They hate Jesus Christ. They hate the truth that we would have to trust in him to have a relationship with God. They don't like it. They hate it. 
and they hate him. And all of these nations that are in existence are now uniting in their hatred against the Lamb. Which brings us to the second prophetic fact, the Lamb's going to overcome them. Verse 14 says, the Lamb will overcome them. The bottom line is this, the Lamb wins, they lose. I want you to notice how the word order breaks down in verse 14 in the proper nouns referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's called the Lamb, the Lamb will overcome them because... He's the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. So you have some pretty solemn, sovereign appellations given here concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. So one question would come to our mind is, I wonder why he starts this off with the Lamb. Why does he use that title first? Why doesn't he start out with the fact that the Lord of Lords or King of Kings is going to do it? I mean, that comes out a little bit later. Why does he start out here with the Lamb? And I think the reason he starts out with the Lamb is that's what they hate. That's what they hate. They hate the substitutionary sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. They hate that. They do not want to submit themselves that the only way to being saved from their sins is through that sacrificial substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. They hate that. They hate him and they hate that message and they don't want to submit to it. So when it starts off with, and the lamb will overcome them, It's like slapping them all in the face. And the verb overcome is one that means when this fight and war occurs, the one who will be the conquering victor, the one who's going to have total victory is going to be the lamb. And the lamb will defeat the Antichrist and his forces for three stated reasons. Number one, he's the Lord of Lords. I love that title about him. Jesus Christ is the Lord and master and ruler over everything. He's the Lord of Lords. The Antichrist and his followers are not the Lord. Jesus Christ is the Lord. He's the Lord of Lords. They've convinced people that they should be followed. It's Christ who's the Lord of Lords. I have little time to fool around with Mormons that want to tamper with the Lord Jesus Christ, Muslims that want to tamper with the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, let's be real clear. He's the Lord of Lords. And secondly, he's the King of Kings. The King of Kings. Jesus Christ is the God King over all kings who've ever reigned. The Antichrist has ten kings, Ten kings at his disposal for a short span of time in the second half of the tribulation period, but he's up against the king of all kings. And thirdly, the lamb has a victorious army with him. That's what the text says. And those who are with him are the called, the chosen, and faithful. Three qualities that he brings out. These qualities describe the same group that are coming. First of all, the called, the claytoy, the called, and what that particular word means is God is the one who has actually called us to salvation. It's an effectual call that he calls one to salvation. Secondly, we're the chosen, the eclectoi, the called, the elect. We're called, and then we're the faithful. We've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're trustworthy. We've trusted him. We've been called into his family. So Satan and the Antichrist and all his evil forces are about to wage war with the Lamb of God, who's the King of kings and Lord of lords, and they're going to lose this. They're going to lose this. Look, if you aren't willing to submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of God, you're going to lose. You are going to lose. You're not going to win because it's the lamb that can give us a relationship with God. And he's the only one who can give us a relationship with God. Now, the third prophetic fact is the waters upon which the Babylonian harlot sits are the nations of the world. Verse 15, and he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Now, to this point, 
there has been a good unity between political leaders and false religion, and there usually is. There's usually good connections between false religion and politics and political leaders. And all of a sudden now, the emphasis shifts from these political leaders and powers to this woman, all of the idolatrous religion and all of the evil immorality that has influenced the entire world has stemmed from this Babylonian influence. And notice the different nations of the world, the different languages of the world, they've all been seduced by the harlot. Well, God is about to turn the satanic world against one of its own, which brings us to the fourth fact. The Antichrist and the kings who support him will turn against the harlot. Verse 16 And the ten horns which you saw, and the beast, these will hate the harlot, and will make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh, and burn her up with fire. Now, Satan and the Antichrist want to be worshipped. And certainly, at this part of the tribulation period, that's what they're after. I mean, they want to be worshipped. The false prophet is promoting the worship of the Antichrist, and of course, Satan is behind all of that. So you can be sure of this. There's no way that Satan and the Antichrist are going to forever share worship with religion. They're just not going to do it. Satan and the Antichrist are going to want to be worshipped themselves. And they're not about to just go along forever and just allow religion to share the limelight with them. And at this point, before the Lamb returns and before they get into the war with the Lamb, they're going to turn on one of their own. I like something that Dan Duncan said years ago about this particular text of scripture. Unity among men, and I'm paraphrasing, apart from Christ is always tenuous and fragile, and conspiracies never hold together for very long. Satanic people may get along for a short time, but it'll be a short time. There is no real unity among people who are not in a right relationship with God. Oh, they may slap each other on the back for a while, but sooner or later it it catches up to them. And in one of the most amazing displays that you'll ever see of the sovereignty of God, and this is incredible, all of these people who've been in cahoots against the Lamb, all of these people who are going to go out and go against the Lamb, that's their intent. But notice how God turns this thing around. Five observations. They will hate the harlot. Verse 16 says, And the ten horns which you saw in the beast, these will hate the harlot. Man, they've been riding along all together to this point in the tribulation. God said, all right, time to bring this to an end. Time to bring this political religious stuff to an end. And so they start hating the harlot. Secondly, they destroy the harlot. That's what verse 16 says. And they will hate the harlot. They'll make her desolate. Thirdly, they'll strip the harlot. That's what the text says, and they will make her desolate and naked. And the theme of being without clothing shows up often in Revelation, and the description of what life will be like in the tribulation is stated in Revelation 9.21. Just back up there a second to Revelation 9.21. Look at that description there, because I really think there's a literal application to this. In Revelation 9.21, we read, They did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. That's what life is going to be like in the tribulation. Murder, sorcery, immorality, and stealing and thieving and robbing. That's what it's going to be like. It'll be filled with a world that's just caught up in that. 
And nudity will become so prevalent that we saw in Revelation 16, somebody's praise if they keep their clothes on. Now, I have no doubt that this refers to the fact that people who are being attacked will literally be without clothes. They'll strip them of clothes. They'll be walking around without clothing. I believe that's happening. And I believe as we near the end of the church age, you're going to see more and more of this stuff that's going to infiltrate programs and TV. I mean, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And once Satan has a shot at this world and the Antichrist has a shot at this world, it'll be the most godless, immoral place you've ever dreamed or heard about. Which brings us to the fourth observation, the kings and beasts will eat the harlot. I think it's going to be cannibalism. We saw that in the book of Jeremiah described, that people are going to be so hungry, they don't have a lot of food to eat. I literally think they're going to be people that are connected to that religious system. They're going to be killed. They're going to be stripped. They're going to literally be eaten for food. And fifthly, the kings and the beasts will burn the harlot. That's what verse 16 says, will burn her up with fire. That's where it ultimately ends. That's where false religion will take people. It'll take them right into fire. False religion is not going to take them to be with the Lord in heaven. It's going to take them to eternal destruction. Now, this is a surreal turn of events. Here you have, all throughout this tribulation, this Babylonian religion working hand-in-hand with the political powers of the world, and they're just kind of going along and promoting each other and getting along, and now all of a sudden, at this point, they turn against this Babylonian harlot, and there's a reason given for it in verse 17, for God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose. God has put this in the minds and hearts to execute his purposes. See, I don't understand half the stuff that's going on right now in this world. I don't have a clue. Why in the world those crazy people in Ohio wouldn't vote to keep men out of women's sports? I don't get that. It doesn't even make rational sense to me. I mean, you have girls that are saying, we're not even going in the locker room, and I don't blame them. I'll tell you what, if my granddaughter were faced with that, I'd be in jail. I know where I'd end up in this. I'd go down there and I'd fight a war if my granddaughter were involved in this kind of thing. But this is the kind of thing that's... I don't understand that. I don't get that. How have people lost their sense of reason? Here's what I do know. God's got things going on here we don't know. And God turns people's minds in ways we don't even think. I mean, Proverbs tells us that, that God turns kings' minds like channels of water. So everything that's going on, even the weird stuff and even the odd stuff that we can't explain is still under the sovereign control of God. And it's heading toward his prophetic conclusions. I'm telling you, it's heading toward his prophetic conclusions. Because God is sovereign over all things. He permits evil people to do evil things that I can't explain. I mean, how do you explain this, that these people are all getting along and all of a sudden they turn against this harlot and they start attacking her because of the sovereign work of God? And God can put it within a person's brain and put it within a person's heart and mind to do exactly what he wants people to do. And he can use wicked, evil, political rulers. He can use wicked, political rulers to accomplish his purposes. He can use godless political leaders, godless man-made religion to accomplish his purposes. And if you have no sense at all that you need to trust Jesus Christ, if I were you, I'd beg God to put it in your heart that you need to trust him. 
I'd get alone with God and say, please, God, I don't sense the urgency of this. Will you please put it in my heart? Because God can open a mind. He can close a mind. He can make a heart tender. He can shut it down and harden it. God's the one who's sovereign. And God has put into the minds of these leaders the drive to execute his plan at this point, And this is the plan of God. And the second reason why there's this turn of events is God has put this in operation to fulfill his word. That's what we read in verse 17. And by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Again, God is basically saying, I'm actually turning minds of the people the way I want it to go because what I'm doing is fulfilling my word. Now, I do know that Paul said, when the church age is winding down, that terrible times will come. I mean, there are a couple of places he says that. He describes what's going to happen as we near the end of the church age. I'm telling you, it's happening. I mean, we're looking at things that are happening that just line up with exactly what Paul predicted is going to happen. And what God is doing here is he's actually using all world events Political leaders who don't even know what they're doing. He's turning their minds in accordance with his word and will to accomplish his purposes. Verse 18 says, The woman whom you saw in the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. The woman is the great city that is going to be targeted, and it's Babylon. I think Babylon is going to become a dominant city when the Antichrist is ruling the world. I think that part of the world in Iraq is going to be rebuilt, and then it is going to be completely obliterated and destroyed. Now, the book of Romans teaches us, as we've been going through Romans, that if a person is without Jesus Christ, they are an enemy of God. And if one is an enemy of God, they're going to lose. So if you've never invited him into your life, I would encourage you to do that. And if you don't sense the need to do that, if I were you, I'd beg God to put that need in your brain. Because without him in your life, you're heading to fire, just like Babylon. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your precious inspired scriptures. We thank you that we can trust that you're a sovereign God. There are things going on in this world, Lord, that we just can't explain. But we know you're working out your plan. That prophetic clock is ticking, and we know we're heading to the rapture. I pray it would be soon. In the meantime, Lord, I pray we would be faithful. We are in your family. You've called us. You've elected us. We are in there by faith. I pray we'd pursue a faithful understanding and application of the scriptures until we have the privilege of seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray you come get us soon. In Jesus' name, amen.